Yo, yo, welcome to Audio Evidence. I'm your host, Ignacio Palmieri. Audio Evidence is a series that develops sound capsules. This show is inspired by the life's work and spirit of Chiori Elui Santiago. Volume 6 of Audio Evidence features my friend and poet, Jamal Rashad. Jamal and I met as undergraduates at San Francisco State University and became comrades through various political and community engagements on and off campus. Jamal has always been someone I look to as a leader of sharp wit, perspective, and provocative thought. About a month or so ago, Jamal shared a Zoom link with me for a virtual event he had read some poetry for, and after watching his clips, I wondered if he'd be interested in sharing some audio evidence about his work and process for this show. He agreed, and I sent over some questions for him to mull over so he could record his responses. What you'll hear are Jamal's replies to my questions, and I'll pop in and out of this episode to provide some quick context to what Jamal will be addressing in subsequent audio clips. Thanks for tuning in, and now introducing Jamal Rashad. All right, all right, what's up? My name is Jamal Rashad. I'm a fat black poet. I'm a recovering addict. I'm a queer a plant lover, uh, sometimes I'm an editor, a social worker, uh, an overall lover. Currently, I am located in Washington, D.C., where I was born and raised. The first question I asked Jamal besides introducing himself was about how being from Washington, D.C. impacted his identity as a writer. Let's take a listen. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, in a lot of ways, I think my decision to write personally and deliberately began not in D.C., but in San Francisco, which is miles and miles away. Um, during that time, I originally met you, right? I think we, we met at San Francisco State University, um, and I was an, an anxious and budding Marxist in undergrad, um, and I was a member of, of some organizations, and at the time... Uh, I had a small talent for writing and they encouraged me. They were putting out uh, propaganda and newspapers. Um, and usually I was nominated to do a lot of the technical writing or editing for them. Some secret printing uh, at my, my job that I had at the time. And that wasn't exactly poetry, but it led to an experimentation with poetry when more concrete forms of expression uh, couldn't hold my emotion, right? Uh, or when I needed to interrogate uh, things that uh, more linear writing could not do. Um, but I'm from D.C., right? Uh, and for me, D.C. is as much, uh, as much as I look at it as a concrete place, I also look at D.C. as a collection of memories, so I, I remember growing up in a place called the Temple Course Projects, which are now a parking lot. Uh, and they the parking lot sits across the street from what is now the NPR building where they have those those tiny desk concerts uh, in Temple Courts in in the 90s and uh, late 80s was known for for green hallways, for drugs, for broken elevators, for uh, suspicious disappearances of black men. Uh, and it, it sounds like really dramatic, but there was a lot of sadness in that place. And I'm always amazed that my mother was able to create uh, a warm environment in, in such chaos. 
she created a space where once we got through the door, we knew we were safe. And I also remember her screaming out of the window a lot at my brother who would be in front of the projects, uh, posturing in certain ways. I remember moving in with my grandparents as they were transitioning from this from this life on a street called Ridge Street in lower northwest DC. Uh, Ridge Street is now a very gentrified neighborhood when I but when I was growing up it was a very middle class black neighborhood. There were a lot of black families and we we looked out for each other. Um it was a it was a situation where almost everyone knew uh, their neighbors. Um, of course, people knew me for uh, certain shenanigans that I was up to. I was a very precocious and sexual child. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of made my reputation there. Uh, but yeah, Ridge was also the place where my grandparents settled when they moved up here from the Carolinas. Uh, I remember uh, my grandfather selling cigarettes there and fixing people's lawnmowers. He he named himself the mayor of Ridge Street. And he would host these weekly car games and, and cookouts and, and a lot of just feel-good stuff, right? Uh, I also remember in the midst of discovering my queerness there, a lot of uh, reactions that I got from people. Um that would later shape a lot of my consciousness in my in my early 20s around my identity a lot of the positive and negative reactions uh that I got for expressing uh desire and personhood as it related to my queerness and i remember my grandfather passing away i remember sitting under his dining room table as my aunts and uncles walked by in the family house i remember seeing a lot of these big people and their feet just move, right? I was sitting under the table. And so all I saw were shoes going back and forth. And I, I don't remember any conversations, but I do remember just seeing people walk back and forth and knowing that something really important um, and sad had happened. And I remember a lot of upheaval, upheaval following that incident. My mother and I moving from place to place. Um, from no count man to no count man, I remember us being a a small uh, singular unit of support for one another. Uh, yeah, DC is just a lot of memories. The unique learning center where I spent a lot of time after school, Shaw Junior High School, which was known for its marching band and for its uh, violence. Uh, a lot of D.C., a lot of the D.C. that I grew up in is gone now. Uh, Shaw Junior High School is now a skate park. Temple Courts is now a parking lot. The high school I went to, Hyde Leadership, is now something else entirely. I believe that I was more connected with the city when I was there as a child. Uh, coming back now, I find myself constantly having to remember what used to be here. A lot of my poetry now is also an interrogation of what used to be here and a lot of sorting through the myths and the truths 
of my my childhood and my relationship to the city um you know and at the core at the core I view myself as a storyteller I hope to use my experience uh and elements of the blues and horror to interrogate uh what what I've been through to see what I can what I can pull out of that uh <laughs> And I think I think now would be a really good time to maybe transition to one of the newer poems that I've been working on. Uh, I've been working a lot around place in D.C. So this poem is about a place called Malcolm X Park. Uh, the park is officially named Meridian Hill Park. Uh, and it's named after some rich uh, white so-and-so who owned the land initially. Um, but it's also called Malcolm X Park in D.C. Uh, it was renamed unofficially by Angela Davis in the 70s during a rally. And the park is just it's an intersection of a lot of places in the city. The white genifiers, uh, gay cruisers, the drum circles. Um, it's also one of the last places that I used drugs in before I got clean. And so I wanted to capture all of this in a piece. Poem. Things found in Malcolm X Park. A crumbled movie ticket. Drifting near a misshapen leaf. A right glove which had been worn and lost to the night's figure. A date's bent Lucy, wet with embalming fluid. Some stray hairs. Orange rinds torn from meat. Orange meat tendons littered about sparingly and glistening in the eye of the moon. A large granite stump straddled by found teddy bears and tracks pacing the stump left from a queen's visual. A stiffened prayer rug, amber, green, and gold crumbed with graham crackers. A boar's head near the entrance to the chained bathroom where daily the queen gave a throat and song. Half-legible appointment cards yellowed in piss water. An asthma pump. One bike lock, nine glasses of still water, a poet's black book, the first notes of a bluesman, a list of aid clinics on the back, two names, Mark and Chauncey, loose red ribbons from an orphaned bottle of Four loco, cigarette ash, broken teeth, nail clippings and lumps of fat, and a gnarled tongue, and coke boogers and meat cleaver, rotten fruit and nut, blood smudged along the chewed cord of a cell phone charger, tears, a container of saline, a lone shirt that through stains reads house music don't stop, a drummer's dusted knuckles, and a cap of oil, China-made kente cloth, a rusted tablet facing 16th Street, which reads The Stone. The deed to David Porter's mansion, which in 1812, he also named the Meridian. A monitoring bracelet. A thumb of sage. Serenity's right tit and granite jaw, which she holds clenched under the statue of Dante. A ripe peach. Pigeon shit. An ace bandage. A dancer's green shorts, a junkie's hype, and a flyer promoting the 1970 arrival 
of and speech from Angela Davis, who would later propose to rename it Malcolm X Park. Several large trees, one with dugout limbs and trunk housing footnotes to Tomb of Sorrow, still lettered with grime, placed on red velvet cushions, tears of flesh on an army man's fatigues, a jock strap with dates written into it, a leopard print backpack beneath a bush which doubled as a pillow and cover for rain, one stone of obsidian, and a picture of my grandfather bent over a card table mouthing curses at his guest. Two pairs of socks doubled into the empty of my father's shoes to feel for the souls that have fallen out and a jar of cemetery dirt. And that poem was Things Found in Malcolm X Park by Jamal Rashad. I came to know Jamal when he was just getting started as a self-publisher of poetry chapbooks in the Bay Area. He has since released multiple volumes of chapbooks, which eventually led to becoming editor of the Imago's Queer Anthology. Imago's is a collection of work by various queer poets of color, which was released in 2019. Jamal tells us about this process and Imago's as a literary project. So, yeah, let me start by saying that I love chapbooks. Uh, I love what they're capable of. A lot of times I refer to a chapbook as a poet's mixtape. Um, for folks who don't know, a chapbook is a, a, a small collection, right? It's a, a intimate interrogation of a subject. Chapbooks usually are no longer than 20 to, I've seen the longest one be 50 pages. Uh, and it's just that uh, concentrated uh, piece of work. Right. My introduction to chapbooks uh, came in Oakland, California. When I went to the chapbook release dinner party situation of a friend named Mai, uh, who, side note, uh, Mai uh, is nominated this year uh, for a Lambda Literary Award, which is a, a big deal. It's a big stinking deal uh, for their collection, Water Tongue, which I think is it's beautiful and um, I try not to say intense because it's a cheat word, but it's a very intense um, and tender book. Uh, but so uh, my was holding a small gathering uh, in their home for a chapbook called Transgressions, which they had put out. And they asked us to write intentions for the coming cycle of the moon. They asked us to, you know, enjoy each other's company, drink wine. Uh, listen to them read and I thought it was a such a beautiful way to birth poetry into the world and it was completely um, grassroots is that what I want to say of the people right uh, it's a bound book uh, I think bound with paper and staples and it was excellent. It was excellent. Uh, a little while later, when I was in uh, an art collective called the Corner Collective, uh, the my fellow collective members uh, suggested that I put together a chapbook. And so when I think of chapbooks, I think of um, that spirit of community um, and the way the community kind of pours into you and, and sees something. 
that is possible for you before you can even see it. Because I wasn't thinking about binding together no book. I wasn't thinking about um, putting out any work. I was just writing poems. And I thought, wow, these people think that my work is good enough to be collected and shared. And we did that. Usually in the Corner Collective, we had uh, regular house parties where we would, it would kind of be a speakeasy setup. There'd be visual art, usually done by a collective member. Uh, there'd be an open mic. Um, and there'd be a dance floor. And that's how we did it. So when uh, I was ready um, to release what was then titled The In-Between Papers, uh, we held an event for that. And I look back at that and I'm, I'm sometimes tremendously embarrassed, but I am also uh, tremendously grateful right, for the reasons that I have highlighted before, uh, community, uh, this this belief, this, this love, um, <clears throat> and this ability to look back at a particular point in time, right? Because it's also like a time capsule. Chapbooks um, are also uh, produced by publishing houses or larger literary bodies. Um, many times uh, these bodies hold contests, right? Or open reading periods. And they look at manuscripts, they publish from what they think is the best or most talented writer or the writer that fits best with them, uh, and boom, it's, it's birthed into the world. Sometimes it's looked at as a prelude uh, before a full collection. doesn't always have to be. Um, a writer that I like, Sam Sachs, has released several chapbooks, uh, and so I refute the notion that a chapbook uh, is of less importance than a full collection. I think that they are of equal importance. I think that they offer something special. They offer a concentrated look. Um, they offer perhaps a way of interrogating a narrative that is not uh, meant for a, a 90 page book or what have you. Uh, yeah, so eventually, um, and this is the other part of your question, which is uh, talking about becoming the editor of Emma Ghost, which is a, a queer anthology, really quickly, um, some background. Emma Ghost is a, a biological term that refers to an insect in a state of sexual maturity. Uh, I became attached to this project when I met a writer named Charles Stokes in Washington, D.C. in a very, 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 very white writing circle. Uh, and I think part of the reason why I initially even talked to Charles was because he was the only other black person there. Uh, so we, we had that thing, right, where you walk into a room and you... You see a sea of white faces and then you see a speck of color and you look for some kind of connection there. Uh, Charles and I became friends um, and we sat down for breakfast one day. I told him about an idea. He told me that he shared a similar thought. Um, 
And we said, okay, you know, you be the editor. Um, that's Charles talking to me. And Charles would produce it. Um, at that time, uh, Charles was, or and still is, the uh, founder of a publishing company in D.C. called Love, Pain, and Poetry. All right, so the book would be released through that, that press. <clears throat> um, something that was important to me in the making of the book was to highlight um, emerging queer artists, right? It's a queer anthology, um, and we hear this term emerging a lot in the writing community, um, and oftentimes the term has no teeth uh, because it, and this is all my opinion, this is the world according to Jamal, you know what I'm saying? Um, the, term, the term has no teeth, uh, because it's used to describe the same group of folks over and over and over again. Um, and you you see the same names. You see the same group of people in the, you know, the under 30 list or the emerging artist list. And it, these people are very talented, um, but they in no way represent the totality, the, the uh, sum total of what is going on and what is being created. And oftentimes these people... Um, have certain entry points into recognition, right? They come from MFA programs that are lauded. They come from fellowships that are lauded. They know um, someone, right? And they're a mentee of a of a known poet. Um, and so their work is valid. Their work is important and they are talented. Uh, and they also have the benefit or the, the privilege of connection and, and, and visibility. And, and these names become the only names, uh, either by the doing of the publishing industry or the doing of themselves, right? Uh, and the doors closed. So when I uh, set out to create this anthology, I wanted to speak to that and encounter that by highlighting folks who do not make these lists, who may not come from um, these uh, big name MFA programs, who may not uh, have been in XYZ fellowship, uh, and to give them space, right? To say that these people exist and what they have to say is equally important. Um, something else that was really important for me in the creation of Imagos was to get a sample of uh, queer community as best I could, right? Um, and so what is in the book um, is work from queers across the spectrum, right? older uh, queers, trans folk, uh, black folk, uh, brown folk, um, uh, Iranian folk, uh, and that, and, and I wasn't thinking of this in a, in a way that would tokenize these identities, but in a way that would look at, uh, all of these various, um, parts of the community, um, and, and ask them to speak, um, and ask them to speak not uh, solely because of their positioning, uh, but because of the insight that that positioning grants. I think that something I appreciate about queer literature um, and about black literature uh, 
uh, is the insight that that existence in the margins gives the writer. Uh, the, the way that the eye is sharpened to the hypocrisies of the society based on the fact that they have been excluded uh, from privilege. You're listening to Audio Evidence. I'm your host, Ignacio Palmieri, and we're engaged in a conversation with poet Jamal Rashad. I asked Jamal how he came to select the poets and poems for the Imago's anthology, and here's what he had to say. Well, when we put the call uh, for submissions out for the anthology, uh, we did it in several ways. Initially, we did it uh, through uh, personal messages, social media, uh, upload, uploading it to um, <clears throat> uh, websites that got a lot of traction. And so we got a lot of responses once things started going. And for me, the process of selecting poems um, was sitting and reading a giant stack of paper uh, and, you know, just pulling things out. What strikes me, right? What is interesting, right? What resonates? Uh, what answers the question of the anthology and moving um, beyond that uh, looking for pieces that challenged um, me as a reader looking for pieces that complemented each other uh, and looking for uh, things that were I think important, uh, important observations or truths. Um, there wasn't really a science to selecting the poets necessarily. I was more concerned with the work. Um, of course, there were uh, folks I reached out to because I was familiar with their work and I thought that it was important um, to include them. But that is not the majority of the anthology. The majority of the anthology are people that I've never met. Um, and so that's really exciting. Uh, to have that space that is dynamic um, and is unfamiliar. Poem, Single Room Occupancy, after Wanda Coleman. The mold on my windowsill is conspiring against me to form a union with the fungi on my sheet-thin mattress. And my neighbor tells me with a full chest, eyes swimming in water, that he is sending off to Africa for a bride and ask what I think is a fair price. Music is the slow drag of the mules at 6 a.m. headed to pasture, only giving pause for the widow on the other side of me who's still screaming about 1992 and the mice we both hear at dawn. Living defiantly has brought me solitude in a room, in neutral, in a shack squat, in this gray struck place and slumped on this cushionless pastel chair where I cover the chipped paint of the walls with what art a week of sucks on unemployment can buy. My thighs have been without moisture for months and now the only comforts I have are in the thousands of trite little verses I managed to write monthly hoping to strike gold. There's a man in Philadelphia who has hexed me, and try as I might, I can't seem to keep the weight off. 
home is unmonitored doses of sleeping pills to silence the mariachi coming from two flights down. I'm on the fifth floor and home is a light on the phone telling me that the sender somewhere has some good dirt to share. Sometimes I sleep in the same outfit twice hoping it will look just as good tomorrow. Since my money is scarce and I can't always drop quarters at the laundromat. Sometimes I sleep for days and wake up missing things I can't remember. Appointments with stamps, caseworker visits, inspection dates. Sometimes I startle awake from my nap, feet slapping the floor, looking in the mirror after I've done a once over and counted where them bugs done bit. And I sigh, at least I still got my eyes. <laughs> So that poem is in Imigos, um, and it's an after poem. It's after uh, an ancestor poet named Wanda Coleman. Right. So the author Samuel Delaney once said, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to quote this directly. He said that the only elements in any society that are important are the artistic and the criminal, uh, because they alone, by questioning the society's values, can force it to change. Uh, for me, that goes back to my earlier statement about what can be gleaned from living in the margins, right? What understanding um, can we uh, uncover about the hypocrisies uh, of our society, right? Any society that is creating uh, space for folks to be left out um, is a society worth critiquing. So that was the the thrust of of my interrogation in selecting people for the anthology. Uh, that is where I see the importance of queer writers, black queer writers, trans writers, um, people of color. That is where I see uh, the most importance because these are voices that have been silenced uh, or misrepresented historically. And these are voices that uh, can see, right, uh, that are given a different sight uh, because of their positioning within the society. Uh, uh, in terms of my hope for people in the anthology, I hope that people read it. <laughs> I hope that people buy it. Uh, I hope that people book the poets that are in it. I hope that the people who read the anthology, look at the poets that are in the pages and are curious about what else uh, those poets are involved with. Um, I don't, I can't predict the future. Uh, I know that um, this was a labor of love, creating this anthology or curating it. And there's also an intense amount of energy right now I'm getting ready to go to grad school, and I don't know if I have enough energy in me to be involved with an anthology um, in the same capacity that I was with this one. So I, I, the short answer is I don't see another anthology in the immediate future. Uh, I am, however, interested in producing more readings. Uh, recently, uh, I curated and produced a reading called Black Beans, uh, which was a black queer uh, reading held on Zoom. Uh, I'm looking into making that a regular podcast, 
with a, a brilliant writer and thinker I know named Robert Randolph that I met at a uh, little fellowship called the Watering Hole Poetry Fellowship. Uh, and I'm working uh, sometimes diligently, sometimes lazily, sometimes not at all <laughs> on a on a um, chapbook manuscript. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. He asked me if I am happy here. He asked me if I am happy here, and I tell him that I have not eaten my pork chops yet. He asked me where I go to have fun. I tell him about the statistics of beached whales monthly and how their natural migration patterns are being interrupted by men in boats. He asked me where I would most like to go. I tell him that when I step into the starless night with nothing to cover my buttocks, there is no one who will enter. He asked me why I have not given thought to getting a good government job. I tell him that I can cut the jaw from a hog clean from its head. He asked me if I have ever considered that I may be borderline narcissistic. And I tell him of the ponds where I submerge my face and taste salt and bile. I count 10 guppies. He asked me to describe to him what my favorite position is. And I tell him that I can recommend which songs make the best soundtrack for a man who is gin drunk and nostalgic for better days. He asked me if I have found God. And I tell him about the fat I leave in jars along the trails of the park and about the men who consume them. And that was He Asks Me If I'm Happy Here by Jamal Rashad. In addition to speaking on the importance of centering queer poets of color, I wanted to know what excited Jamal about the future of queer poetry moving forward. So let's tune back in. I'll go back to the Delaney quote. Um because of uh, positioning within colonial society, uh, queer existence uh, throws uh, back a question, all right, a question um, to the root agreement or violences that have been instituted by white supremacy. And the same can be said for black existence, fat existence, brown existence, um, anything that is othered. Um, and so because of that, right, because of that potential question. Um, I'm always excited about queer poetry. I'm always excited to see uh, what folks are doing um, that is affirming or challenging. Uh, I look forward to uh, queer poets using their recognition to make more space uh, at the table for others who are behind them, uh, if not uh, destroying the table altogether and building something uh, in its place. I look forward to reading new books I look forward to meeting more folks. Uh, I look forward to uh, queer poetry remembering um, some of its radical roots, right? Roots in protest. Um, poetry that exists, that is not something that exists outside of the society, that exists because of the society, uh, that exists to question and change the society. Uh, we need poets, right? We need poets now more than ever. Uh, we need people uh, to keep records and to, to dream and to ramble and, and make trouble and be disruptive. Uh, we need that. 
we need that the same way we need water uh, because we are we are living um, inside of a twister right of of, 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 of violence and shit and 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 hurt uh, and we need healers and seers and we, and we need uh, joy right poetry produces joy too um, we need all that You're listening to Audio Evidence, and I'm your host, Ignacio Palmieri, and we're engaged in a discussion with poet Jamal Rashad. Given the social circumstances we find ourselves in during the time of a pandemic, I asked Jamal to highlight how his creative process has been impacted by being in quarantine and what virtual events he's found himself being a part of. Let's listen to his response. Yes, so because we are in a particular um, uh, situation with COVID-19, uh, a lot of the things that we formerly relied on do not exist, right? Large gatherings, um, that kind of person-to-person interaction. Uh, but one of the beautiful things and one of the uh, incredible things I've seen people do is, is to make space, right? So we see digital readings in virtual space, right? We see uh, folks sharing resources and and sharing material resources. Uh, As I mentioned before, one of the things that I've done uh, is created a reading called Black Beans, uh, which I look forward to uh, turning into a podcast. I was also a part of this uh, oral history project uh, called Queers and Queers in Quarantine, uh, which was created by two brilliant queers um i think because of the situation with um heightened um surveillance and police presence uh that 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 digital archive will disappear soon uh because the the creators were worried about um surveillance and so i don't know how long it's going to be up if it's going to be up by the time that this Recording goes live, but if it is, the website's name is Queers in Quarantine. It's the same name, and it's a, a great digital archive, um, and I recommend checking it out while you still can. I was also a part of this uh, five-day get-down for uh, for Black Gay Pride here in D.C., and it was called Black in Space. Uh, it was a great way to be connected. I, I saw uh, and heard a lot of folks. Um, who I had not um, been given the privilege of experiencing before. It was it was it was really dope, uh, <clears throat> and coming up at the end of this month, uh, this month being June, I am going to be a part of a reading with uh, the Borderlands Poetry Review. Uh, that's going to be on Zoom, um, and hopefully. Uh, there's going to be a tribute to a great queer poet uh, named Colin Robinson. Um, and I'm looking forward to being a part of that because Colin is, is, is very important to me. And I, I want to hopefully offer something back. Uh, you know, maybe you'll see this manuscript materialized by the end of the year. Maybe you won't because um, I'm also very con- cognizant of the fact that I may want to take a break uh, from uh, poeting 
for for about a month before school um, before I am overwhelmed and that's it man I encourage folks to oh 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 before I go uh, there's a reading that I'm hosting called Under the Sycamore Tree which is going to be on June 27th uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, it's on my Instagram um, check it out if you got time uh, if you would like to connect with me on Instagram, uh, you can find me um, at art, A-R-T, in the, I-N-T-H-E, court, C-O-U-R-T, of the, O-F, T-H-E, black fag, B-L-A-C-K-F-A-G, art in the court of the black fag. That's my Instagram handle. I am very proud of it. Um if you're looking for some of my work, uh, you can find me on Neutral Spaces. And <laughs> that's it. Thank you so much, Jito. Uh, I appreciate this. This is really dope. Um, and perhaps I'll leave you guys uh, with one more poem uh, before I'm gone, if I can. A boy drowns in the river, which is flooding. A boy maps out changes in currents. Boys throwing bones in a courtyard hear a person on the news speak about a boy who is drowned. The boys on a bus read about the boy who is drowned. The boys who march raise money for the families of other boys who have been taken under tow. Boys with bloated skin give lectures about the importance of reading moon charts. A boy threatens to drown. A boy cynicist reads the skies and warns that there will be more drowning, silent, painful, and slow. Boys become professional lifeguards. Near the gap, boys gather to make nice under trees, turn each other around and dance. Some boys lay wreaths. A boy bathes himself in river water finds the mouth and makes his bed. And that was volume six of audio evidence featuring my friend and poet Jamal Rashad. You can find his work online and be sure to search for the queer anthology Imagos. This episode is a special Juneteenth tribute and is in honor of all of the black lives we've lost due to state violence in recent months. Let us continue to uplift the voices of our people while we share space on this land and at this time. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next volume of Audio Evidence, and please take care.